So now you're in Scotland. What are you going to do with four monkeys in your garage, right? And they found an island in the the Firth of Forth, um, the river that flows nearby, and it was an abandoned island. It had been a farm, and there was a big barn on it. And they decided they were going to release this these four monkeys on this island. They got the farmers, the owners' permission, and at 6 a.m. one morning, the farmer, the scientist, and his graduate student rowed the four monkeys in a boat across the river to the island, set them up with a bunch of food in the barn, and opened the doors. and And they lived there for a year. And then one day, somebody heard what sounded like a baby crying on the island. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Benjamin Beck, scientist emeritus with the Smithsonian Institute. He retired as associate director of the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. in 2003, but over the course of his career, he authored more than 80 scientific papers and books. He has also published two fiction novels based on his conservation experiences and knowledge of primates and their behaviors. And today, he is here to talk with us about his most recent project titled a history of primate reintroduction. So, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks. You've done a kind of a new research project. Would you kind of fill us in a little bit on what a history of primate reintroduction is? This project uh, has been about 30 years in the making, and it, it represents a switchback from writing a couple novels to being a, a, a science nerd. Um, primate reintroduction, of course, we all know what primates are. They're either apes or monkeys or little prosimians like lemurs. And reintroduction really means to take them from someplace in captivity and put them in the wild or one place in the wild and moving them to a different place in the wild. Okay. And so primate reintroduction, and I've surveyed as many cases as I could find and we ended up with 22,999 primates, 202 different stories, uh, over five centuries. Five centuries. Five centuries. And so um, you might very well ask, well, why bother? Um, to me, uh, I have two endearing scientific interests. One is, how do animals learn? And the other is, how do we save animal species from extinction? Learning and conservation and reintroduction really combines both of those because think about if, if many reintroductions are conducted for conservation purposes. A species has been diminished in one area. You've got a bunch of them in zoos. Um, you take them back to the wild. You put them in the wild so that the species can replenish itself. And the, the issue is, however, how do they learn to adapt? So it is kind of the classic learning experience. If I put you down in the middle of Alaska with nothing to wear or eat or use, how do you figure out how to survive? It is the life and death learning experience. Yeah, or how many of you do I have to put there and how many of you survive being put there? That's a, that's a big issue. Yeah. And, um, and how do they figure it out? Mm. Um, I wanted to... Talk about the idea of putting this this all together because was this stuff that you you said, Wow, I've got all this stuff sitting around, all this all this research that I've done or that I've had access to that's not all coordinated and if I add to it I think it, I can really kind of help move the cause forward. 
How did you how did you come to decide to put all this together? Precisely. Um, people who are thinking about reintroducing primates, planning to reintroduce primates, really don't have a single coordinated resource to consult. And so what I'm finding is that people reinvent the wheel all of the time. And so I thought I would, by drawing all these programs together and trying to synthesize them and draw some major conclusions, commonalities, critical differences, I might help these scientists. And in helping the scientists, of course, we're also helping the primates that they're going to reintroduce. Okay, so you're like, if you want, if you have ten, if you have rhesus monkeys, rhesuses monkeys, this is this is where you can put them. This is what happened last time they reintroduced them. These are the successes and the failures, and this is why we think they succeeded and failed. Um, I didn't quite go the the latter two. I, I think I, the emphasis is on the first one. Here's what other people have done with rhesus monkeys, reintroducing them. Right. They've reintroduced them here and here and here and here. Um, this has been the outcomes. This is pretty much what it cost, how long it took, what lessons were learned. But I don't come up with prescriptions for how to reintroduce a rhesus monkey. Because that's kind of their deal. I think the practitioner is the one who has to make those conclusions. So what I'm trying to do is provide the historical resource that will make their decision-making easier and more effective. So you sort of just reached back over a long career of doing this conservation work because you were involved in conservation work with the golden lion tamarind monkeys. I mean, so you you really have firsthand experience on what this work is like. So you sort of just reached back over the years and just said, well, I remember this program, I've heard about this program, and then just coalesced all those into a single database because that's really what it feels like it's a database it's a database and it's also a bunch of really cool stories because every one of these things has its own story and some of them are full of pathos some of them are full of bravery and innovation some of them are full of endurance some of them are just full of perversity and, and, <laughs> you know we scientists can <laughs> really world varied lot um, but yeah, it was, you know, I started my own reintroduction experience in 1983 with golden lion tamarinds, which is a small monkey that lives in Brazil. There were 150 left in the wild, and we had about 500 of them in zoos around the world. So the natural idea was, well, let's take some from zoos and reintroduce them to the wild. And it sounded very challenging. I was fortunate to get funding to lead the program. Um, and t- took us 20 years to figure out how to do it. We reintroduced uh, 146 golden lion tamarinds from zoos over 20 years, and now we've got 3,000 in the wild. That's insane. Because it took us, it, and it took us a long time to figure out the best way to reintroduce these animals. And that was down in Brazil. That was in Brazil. Yeah. Brazil, absolutely. Yep. So, what is the best way? Like, you, you can't just drop them in among the other monkeys and say, "Have at it." There's a school of thought that says, you know, do a hard reintroduction and just. Put them in there in sufficient numbers, and one or two of them are going to survive, and it's okay. <laughs> so we tried that, and it was a miserable outcome. Um, almost all of them died, and um, there were ethical issues in my mind about it, humane issues about it, and so we stopped, and we rethought the whole thing, and what we discovered was that the only way to reintroduce these monkeys was to put them in the wild and run a zoo in the wild. So they had radio collars. We could find them if they got lost. We provided enormous amounts of food for them, water, veterinary care, shelter. So we ran a zoo in the wild, and we kept them alive long enough that they could reproduce. And from some 
still unknown reason, their youngsters were perfectly capable of surviving in the wild. Get out. They got all of their, they, they had all of the skills of truly wild monkeys when, as they grew up. Hmm. And presumably they were supposed to learn their skills from their parents, but their parents were still clueless. <laughs> so we don't know how that happened, but it did happen, and uh, it's one of the great mysteries of life. But there they are, and we've got 3,000 of them in the wild now. Yeah, that's crazy because you don't think of that as something that will happen with a primate. You think that happens with fish. Precise, <laughs> precisely, Tony. You got, you're right on because we think of primates learning how to survive, how to interact socially from their parents. But in this case, it was almost as, as if some genetic knowledge re-emerged under the, the proper circumstances. That's wild. That's really wild. And the parents didn't make any effort to unteach them. No, no. The parents were, uh, I they think... They weren't like, hey, the food's over here. Why are you foraging? Well, the, you know, the kids ate plenty of provision food, <laughs> but, but they just got at, they got at it. As they became old and, uh, older and independent, they got at it and became wild monkeys on their own. Oh, wow. Now, when you were doing the research, you, you mentioned a moment ago, and I wanted to circle back to it, that in doing this collection of these of this data for a history of primate reintroduction you come across like 200 and some odd stories and that um and i remember you and i were talking at one point and one of the stories that stuck out to me because you think about primate reintroduction that sounds a very like a very dry scientific uh term but you were talking about i think it was maybe in vietnam there was a moment where these guys went to rescue and I don't know, could you, could you tell us that story? Because that was a really phenomenal, I mean, for me, it really kind of framed up what was going on with, uh, you know, the primate reintroduction and putting it in a real sort of real terms. The, the, the species we're talking about is the Katba langer, C-A-T-B-A langer, which is a type of monkey. And there are very few of these left in the world, probably fewer than 100. Wow. And they live in a very rocky island environment um, in, off the coast of Vietnam. And there was one large group in a national park that consisted about 50 langers. And because somebody excavated part of the land to make a fish farm, two or three of these langers became isolated on a small island from the main population, three females, prime breeding females, are out there by themselves, no reproductive future, no way for them to contribute to the conservation of this species. So um, a group sponsored by the Munster Zoo in Germany decided they were gonna try to catch these three females and reintroduce them to the group on the larger island. And sounds very simple, but these, um, these limestone cliffs are extraordinarily steep. And this particular type of langer likes to sleep in caves. So they formed the idea that they were going to catch these three females when they went to sleep at night. And they worked at it for, they put a guy out there or a gal alternating for several months to try to find out when all three langers ended up sleeping in the same cave. And um, they... Finally, after three months, they caught them all. They found them all in the same cave. They call the mainland. Out comes a boat full of uh, veterinarians who are, and, and helpers who are going to 
they, uh, scale these cliffs. They used actual rock climbing gear to get up to the cave. They go in the cave. The langers climb way up into a <laughs> chimney at the top of the cave. The vet has to climb all the way up again using rock climbing gear so she can get a shot of tranquilizer at these three langers. She gets all three of them. They catch them in a net in the floor of the cave. Now they've got to rappel down the cliff, about 150 feet. With sleeping monkeys. With sleeping, with three sleeping <laughs> monkeys. Three sleeping monkeys. They get them down to the boat. It's another two-hour trip back to the other group. And they had built a little cage there to hold them for a day or two while they acclimated to the new environment. Well, they woke up on the trip back. They get them into the cage. One of the females promptly escapes, zips directly over to the other group. The big group is now, mm. it's now early in the morning. The big group is fascinating. Hey, who's the new monkeys in, her, in the group? Right. One female escapes, goes right into the group, and they figured, well, we might as well let them all go. So all three of them immediately joined the group, and they were copulating by the end of the day. So it's a great story. Um, but how heroic is that, to have to come through the night in a boat, scale cliffs, so all of this kind of climbing? You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with Dr. Benjamin Beck, scientist emeritus with the Smithsonian Institution. And now you get these, where, where do you get the stories? Where, where do you find these? It's a combination of the scientific literature, uh, Facebook sites, uh, Facebook pages, websites, um, um, journalistic reports, uh, radio broadcasting, in other words, everywhere. We, were you getting these as a result of working on this book, or was this something you had collected in the past? Not this, well, this particular story, yes, and also some of the other stories. You're like, oh, I know that's a cool story from... Well, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the whole field because I've been working on it since 1983. So little by little, I've been collecting scientific literature, um, and people send me stories. I put out a call, and I said, have you, have you been involved in primate reintroduction? Send me an account of it. Um, so it was a very painstaking but very enjoyable process of putting together these 202 stories. And well, then you followed up also with interviewing many of the people as well. Because I know I remember you and I, when you were kind of doing a lot of the research, we talked, and you said, oh, I just talked to so-and-so, and, and you were able to kind of get not just okay i'm right i read this account online i put it in the book and go there there was a lot of person to person involvement as well right i was interviewing people um and then i sent the the some of the more difficult and controversial accounts i sent back to the scientists and said i want to make this i want to get this right so read it over and you know with some scientists it took probably 15 different communications to get it the way we all wanted it some of these stories had never been told and when I contacted the, the scientists involved, they were very reluctant to have them told. Really? For example, well, at the University of Stirling in Scotland, there was a, uh, a scientist who did a lot, had a colony of monkeys called stumptail macaques, and he did a lot of really good work on de behavioral development, social behavior. Um, and then in the late 1980s, the university um, realized that there was this uh, herpes virus that infected monkeys, and if it infected people, it could be fatal. So they ordered all of the monkeys in Dr. Chamov's colony to be euthanized. Oh, 
Now you can imagine he's worked with these monkeys for years and yeah. years and years, graduate oh. students, and the university just said they all got to go, and oh, we're going to kill them. We're not going to. There's no other way. Oh. Well, there were four babies that had their mothers had rejected them, and they were being raised in a separate area. And somehow, when the university executed, that's a bad word, implemented its euthanasia program, they missed these four babies. So the scientists packed them up and took them home, put them in his garage, he and his senior graduate student at the time. Now, this story had never been told because obviously it He involved- stole monkeys, yes. <laughs> He's, he stole the you school's monkeys. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a term I mean, there's, limit on how long. Yeah, yeah, there's probably a euphemism we could have yeah. used. So, so now you're in Scotland. What are you going to do with four monkeys oh, in right. your garage, right? And they found an island in the, the Firth of Forth, Forth of, Firth of Forth, um, the river that flows nearby. And it was an abandoned island. It had been a farm. And there was a big barn on it with a lot of hay and a roof because it's cold in Scotland. And they decided they were going to release this, these four monkeys on this island. Um, they got the farmers, the owner's permission. And at 6 a.m. one morning, the farmer, the scientist, and his graduate student rode the four monkeys, rode R-O-W-E-D, in a boat across the river to the island, set them up with a bunch of food in the barn, and opened the doors, and off they could go. And they lived there for a year. Um, And then one day somebody heard what sounded like a baby crying on the island. They got the police involved. The police came. They found monkeys. (laughs) In In Scotland. (laughs) And it turns out that the local constabulary had never given permission for this to happen, even though the owner was cool with it. So they had to remove the monkeys and uh, take them to the zoo in Edinburgh, which they did. But um, that story had never been told anywhere. I just got wind of it through the scientific grapevine, and I contacted this (laughs) scientist who's now doing public relations work in New Zealand. And it was like, well, no, I don't think we want to talk about this. And I said, well, look, I'm going to tell the story one way or the other, so you can help me or not. And sure enough, they got into it, and then they would seem to be really relieved that the story was finally going to come out and so the floodgates opened they were sending me pictures and all sorts of stuff so yeah they, the 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 guilt of of having stolen those monkeys just probably wore them down after. well probably the statute of limitations yeah. is over anyway and who's gonna <laughs> yeah. who's gonna prosecute them monkey for theory. saving the monkeys right well, yeah. and i guess the, the point is by then also the monkeys were no longer infected or weren't weren't carriers of, of they the weren't disease. carriers and as a matter of fact many monkeys can carry this disease and and it, it will not always be fatal to people so we can coexist so with this. was it an overreaction do you think at the uh, the first part i don't know i, ca- I can't i'm, I'm ju- not asking you to blame anyone i for can't judge monkeys. that yeah. i wasn't there and i don't know what the evidence was but there there were certainly options to euthanasia there's always options to euthanasia and isolation of, of healthy animals so yeah. uh, but uh, it was just such a, a a quirky and charming story of one guy who just wanted to help out three four little monkeys you know Right. I was thinking about this this morning, and it's interesting that you're telling these stories now. Um, I was going through, I have a list of stories that I've started, and these are nonfiction stories, and I have this collection of facts and cool things, and that's all it is, and I have like 40 of them. And I was thinking this morning, I'm like, you know, you're, you're going to die with all 40 of these stories with, you know, three paragraphs worth 
in your in your computer because you've already reached the point where you've collected more information than you ever could expand upon. You have to pick two or three things and deal with it. But I guess option number two is to say, hey, you, here is a list of really cool stories if you want to use them to tell your own stories or to add to the story that you're already working on. I found a lot of these stories, the scientists involved had never really bothered to publish the stories. And they were almost relieved that somebody else was interested and willing to take over. Now, I didn't always tell it the way they wanted it told, but I tried to get them to at least agree on the facts. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with Dr. Benjamin Beck, scientist emeritus with the Smithsonian Institution. And so when you decided to compile all these stories, it was time to figure out how you're going to publish it. You decided to do something unlike any other author or writer that I've come across. Uh, You decided to make this available free because you wanted this book to be a tool. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to that unusual decision? We have to look a little bit to understand it into the business of academic publishing. We're talking about scientific books and magazines, what we call journals, and they contain the results, reports of the results of research in all sorts of scientific fields from material science to biomedical science, whatever. Um, And there's four big publishers. There's um, Wiley, Blackwell, Elsevier, Springer, and not a large number of publishing houses. This scientist in Vietnam who's trying to figure out how to reintroduce these langers doesn't have U.S. dollars, doesn't have access to Amazon, probably. Um, And so they're not going to see research that was done by reintroductions that were done by other scientists. And as a result, their work is going to be a lot harder and might not be as effective. So I'm thinking, well, my purpose in this was to try to help reintroduction managers and help the primates that they're reintroducing. So I got this idea of putting it up online with free access. And with the help of the folks at Saltwater Media, we designed a lovely website. And the response was interesting. We have a little writer's group, and one of the members of our writer's group said, well, Ben, you can't do that. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, 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 you're not going to make any money. And I said, well, I don't care. You know, I'm not expecting to make money. He said, well, it's not going to be peer-reviewed. And I said, well, um, I'm going to put it up on the website and put a forum on it so that if anybody finds a mistake, they can note the mistake or the addition. So I got 3 billion peer reviewers, potentially, Monkey Wikipedia. <laughs> monkey Wikipedia. <laughs> Did you buy monkeywikipedia.com? Because no, we think, totally should. Though. I think you missed your opportunity. Well, we'll uh, talk to Patty. <laughs> we've had in the first two months of publication, we don't have our September figures yet, but the first two months of publication, we've had over 3,000 unique views from 78 different countries. Now, how can you get fast, wide, and free distribution that matches those numbers. It would be very difficult. You'd have to be a Jack Grisham to do right, that. Right, yeah. Um, now, so the question now is, it's a very attractive format, but is it effective? The gold standard is, how many times will that book be cited by other scientists? It's called a citation index. And it takes a couple of years for those citations to start to appear where people use your book. Right. But we don't know if it's going to be used. The format might make it difficult to use. But that almost doesn't matter I mean, because, I mean, I've done, I've done research, not monkey research, but, you know, you're like, all right, that is cool. Uh, you, see, you, see a, you see a fact that you are interested in and you check the footnote and you're like, oh, they got that from there. You know, it gives you, it gives you a direction to look. I'm like, I'm not writing about this thing 
but I'm kind of writing about what this person you footnoted. So if you're sending them off in the right direction, I mean that's your goal. You you want to get you want you want to get monkeys reintroduced safely and effectively. And if that's your goal, then I don't know how critical. I mean, it's nice when people read your work. Don't get me wrong, but the the the, the citation they might they might skip the citation to to go directly to the original sure. source. Sure, that could happen. That so could happen. so the citations on the original sources are something that you may want to keep an eye on because most people wouldn't know that the original sources existed if you hadn't done this work. Yep, yeah, and all the original sources are there. So they can go back and contact, you know, look at the original sources. I I was in Peru recently and I visited a small sanctuary, animal sanctuary in Iquitos. And I talked to the manager of the sanctuary, and I said, have you done any primate reintroductions? And he said, well, we have about 20 monkeys here, and we'd really like to reintroduce them. But he said, you know, we have to get permission from the government to do it. We have to write proposals. And he said, we don't even know where to start. We don't know what exists, what other people have done. We don't know what the guidelines are. And I said, do I have news for you? (laughs) I said, do you have an internet connection? He said, yep. I said, okay, let's get going. And within a half an hour, this guy was just radiant with the idea that now he had, you know, a a one-stop place to go for all the critical information he needed to write proposals to reintroduce these monkeys. And that's the way I wanted it to work. And it doesn't cost him five cents. Mm. Right. And because I think, you know, you've had a, a storied career. I mean, you've had an incredible career in this field. And I think for you to be able to say, you know what? You know what, guys? I'm gonna col- I'm gonna collect all of this data, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give this to you. I mean, I feel like that's an extremely benevolent gift that you've given to to your field, and to say, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna expect you to give me fifty bucks a pop to go at this thing. I just want is it really felt to me when you were doing this project that there was this this true effort to just want to save the data, collect it, and make it available for everybody. And yep. I just felt like that was an extremely, you know, like I said, benevolent gift to, to leave to your, your peers and the people in this field. But it doesn't carry the same cachet, the scientific cachet, to publish this way online, at least at this time in, in our history. When I started college, uh, Wikipedia was like, no, you cannot use Wikipedia. Right. By the time my grandkids start college, it might be the only source of... of you might be a pioneer. Yeah. Well, you, might, you might be a... We'll yeah, see. Um, there, there are movements now toward open access publishing of scientific information, but the way they work is you pay the journal up front. So I pay $3,500 to get my article submitted, peer-reviewed, and published. And after that, anybody who wants access to my article has it free. So the publisher makes some money that way. Um. I'm worried that that yeah. will lead to a decrease in scientific quantity. It could turn into a pay-for-play kind of thing, um, pay-to-play. So I don't know what the best answer is, but we'll, you know, if this is effective as well as attractive, um, then I think it could become, uh, I'd like to see it to be a revolutionary movement among scientists. We all complain about the cost of journals. Well, folks, let's join hands and put them out of business. You know who's never going to be put out of business by his for his writing? You, because you write incredible limericks. And I don't charge for them any more than Ben does. Actually, I pay people to read them 32 cents a pop. Yes, yes, actually, we do people we do pay people to read your limericks. That's, do, you that's want to, do you want to expand upon that? Sure. So if you like the show and if you like what you're hearing, 
and if you would like a postcard with a limerick by Tony and a haiku by me, you can go to so what's your story podcast.com. Click on the contact us page and just give us your name, a mailing address. You pick a word, Tony will put it into a limerick. I'll turn it into a haiku and we will put it on a fancy schmancy postcard. We'll slap a stamp on it and pay a guy to bring it to your house. If you are fascinated by these stories and want to read more of what Dr. Beck has written, you can do it at his website. Just visit www.drbenjaminbeck.com and that's drbenjaminbeck.com. All right, Stephanie, well, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast again. It's been fun. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, and if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.